listening to the Ultimate Outcome Sermon Podcast. This is Ryan. Here's Richard with today's sermon. Thanks for listening. So, here we are, and uh, we're at the end of our series entitled uh, The Third Tabernacle, Negotiating the End Times. And um, as we do, we're going to be looking at um, Christ coming in the clouds. Now, one of the things that's interesting about Christ's second coming and, and the description of that is that he has uh, told us about it, and Scripture has told us about this moment in time throughout uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And one of the things that I kind of find interesting about it is that it's sort of similar. I wonder if we're similar to those who respond uh, to when he said that he was going to die and rise again. Now, think if you were one of his disciples and you heard him repeatedly say, I'm going to be going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be mistreated by the uh, leaders of uh, our religion, the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. They're going to mistreat me and I'm going to be killed and then I'm going to rise again. Now, when Jesus told his disciples that, uh, they never really expected it to happen, did they? Because when it did happen, uh, they were totally surprised by the resurrection, even though they had been repeatedly told that is what's going to happen. Look, it's really hard to believe what we've never experienced. It's really hard to believe something, even though somebody who is credible has told us it would happen. It's really hard to believe that it will actually happen. I don't know. Let me ask you this question by way of illustration. Has any of you seen the green flash at sunset? Anyone? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've made them watch and watch and watch a lot of sunsets in order for them to see this because most people don't even believe it's true. But every once in a while at sunset over the ocean, if you watch just as the sun is going down uh, over the horizon, there'll be a little green flash in the very last moment of light. You don't believe me. <laughs> I told this uh, to a friend of mine who I was surfing with uh, a couple weeks ago at sunset. We were surfing at sunset. The sun's going down. I said, watch the sun. Let's see if they have a green flash. And he looks at me. And So we watched the sun, and it didn't happen. <laughs> there it is. There's a picture of uh, the green flash that every once in a while occurs over the ocean right at sunset. Now, I say that because I think with my friend, I had credibility, but because he'd never experienced it before, because he'd never seen it before, he didn't really believe that it would happen, that it existed. Uh, and I think to a certain degree, we can kind of feel that way about the second coming of Christ, because it's nothing that, especially the description of it and how he comes with the clouds in great majesty and glory, it's hard for us to uh, even comprehend it, much less really expect it. And, uh, you know, as Christ returns in the sky, as we mentioned, both the Old and the New Testament describe this matchless splendor, this glorious coming, this uh, where the earth is just completely filled with his glory, and the general public will be shocked and surprised and totally taken back by this when it happens. Uh, they will also be terrified at the specter of his appearing. But the question I want us to ponder this morning ourselves is, will we be surprised? 
will it surprise us when the Lord uh, returns in the manner in which he has all along told us he was going to? You know, when we look back at how he foretold the resurrection, uh, we can recognize that it is within human nature to really let things go in one ear and out the other, especially if it's something that we'd never experienced before. So are we looking for that day? Are, are we trying to imagine what it would be like? Are we ready for and expecting the words of Christ to come true when he says he's coming again and the, and the clouds will be filled with his glory? Um, just because it has never happened before doesn't mean that it won't happen. Think about that. If anyone ever argues to you uh, it's something that has never happened before, will never happen, uh, think about what they're actually saying there. Everything that does exist has existed for the first time. There is nothing here in this room that at one time wasn't in existence. Uh, everything that has existed happens for the first time. Before, there was no light, right? There was a time when there was no light. And the first time there was, a li there was light in the universe, it had never ex happened before that, right? Uh, once there was no life, there was a time when there was no life. And when there was no life, and life occurred, it was the first time it had ever happened. Once there were no men and women, once there was no humanity, but once it did happen, it was the first time it happened. Once there was no resurrection from the dead, and then there was resurrection from the dead, and when it happened, it was the first time it happened. Now, if it were true that something that has never happened will never happen, then we would have never happened. Nothing would have ever happened. Everything that has happened has happened for the first time. And so are you ready for this first time coming, this event, when Jesus Christ, who is and who was and who is to come, comes again, and we see him in the majesty of his coming? Are we ready for this moment of transformation? Look at what I want to say is there is no moment of change or transformation that is as dramatic as creation itself uh, than the second coming of Jesus Christ, because everything will change in that moment. All that has been corrupt will be come, become whole. All that is wrong will become right. Um, and every eye will see him. That's the title of our um, message this morning, every eye will see him. And we're looking at Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just pray as we look at your word this morning that it would benefit us as we consider your coming and that we would not just think these are nice words, but we would bank on them, that they would be the guiding light that would guide our actions and our thoughts, that our thoughts and our actions would be guided on the truth of this first-time event that will come to pass. We pray, Father, that you'd bless um, the reading of your word this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 8, beginning at verse 4, it says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him 
who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and and, uh, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn uh, of the dead, and the ruler of the king of the earth, kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom priests to his God and Father, and to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and those who pierced him, and even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail and on the account of him. So even, even so, amen. I put these plants in the wrong place. I can't see the screen with them there. Uh, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So here we have a the beginning of a message that John the Apostle is giving to the seven churches in Asia Minor. John was the only apostle who himself was not martyred for his faith. Instead, he was exiled to the island of Patmos off the shore of modern-day Greece, where he spent his remaining days uh, in exile. And during that time when he was on that island, Jesus himself appeared in a mighty vision and a powerful vision to him, revealing the future events that he would write down in what is now called the book of Revelation. And leading up to uh, this third tabernacle that we looked at when we began our series in chapter 21 of this very same book, the book of Revelation, uh, we see that many things unfolding. And and the first thing we're going to see is the beginning or the preamble to a message that John is given to give to the seven churches in uh, what is um, modern day Turkey. Now, this preamble to the message that he's going to give to each one of these churches is where we're going to be looking this morning. It's what I just now just read. And John begins with the extension of God's grace, that is, his unmerited favor and his peace, his, the, the well-being of his presence to these seven churches. And then he introduces the author of the message that was to be given. And he emphatically emphasizes that this author, the one who is giving the message, the Alpha and the Omega, will be returning in the clouds or with the clouds. And so the theme of this morning's message is this, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Let's take a look at verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who have pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail. On account of him, even so, amen. Now, I want to just draw your attention to um, the beginning and the end of this verse. Behold, he is coming, and even so, amen. The word behold here is, is, is the idea that, look, you really need to pay attention to what it is I'm about to say. I really want to emphatically draw your attention to this. This is really important stuff. 
And then there is a double assurance of the ver- veracity of what he says at the end of this verse, where it says, even so, amen. Amen means it is as it, I say it is. May it be as I say it is. Uh, but the even so is an emphatic to that. It is what I say it is. It is absolutely reliable, the words that I am saying to you. Pay attention. With certainty, these things will happen. Uh, there is a certain bedrock to all truth. All truth has bedrock ideas at the very beginning of it. And this is one of those bedrock ideas of all truth, that Christ is coming in the clouds. Uh, that is something that will that, that we can draw out of and draw from and extend the whole nature of reality. One of these first bedrock truths is at the very beginning of the Bible. And that is, in the beginning was God. Uh, one of the things I want to point out to you in the grammar here is this word was. In the beginning was God is the very foundational truth to all philosophical and religious and scientific truth. That from God and out of God, everything that exists, all reality has come from that one truth that in the beginning was God. And we see this idea of was in this text as well, where the one who is talking identifies himself, or the messenger identifies himself as the one who is, currently exists, the one who was, uh, has already existed, and the one who is to come, the one that will be coming in the clouds. Now, the interesting thing in this text Twice, where the word was is used in uh, in the idea that he he is the one who was. It's uh, the Greek word ian, and it's got a grammatical form that we don't have in English. The grammatical form of this word is the uh, imperfect durative imperfect, which which means uh, we can't really say it in English. There isn't one word that says it in English. What means is it's. <laughs> In, in terms of was, is it wasn't just something that happened in the past. It's something that continually has always existed in the past. So if we were going to interpret this act accurately, when he says he is the one who was, we could say he is the one who has never not been. Or we could say he is the one who always has been, who has never not existed. This is the one who is speaking here. Uh, and um, this is a foundational truth. The one who is speaking here is the one who, uh, in the beginning, was God. He is the foundational truth. This is the foundational truth of all truth, that God is, God was, and God is to come. And we're going to be looking at the is to come part on this. Now, what exactly do I mean by a bedrock truth? Well, let me try to illustrate you. It with you in a physical way here. Uh, this is a picture of what you might imagine is the first wheel, the invention of the wheel. The invention of the wheel is a fundamental principle for all technology. <laughs> Without this invention, nothing would have followed that has followed in terms of the modernization and the development of industry and all that has been built on it. Without the wheel, uh, none of the rest of what we have uh, built in our complex industrial uh, life would have ever been able to occur. So it is a fa- 
even though it's a simple concept, it's a fundamental concept, just like the concept uh, he was. He is, he was, and he is to come. All truth comes from this most fundamental truth, that in the beginning was God, he has always existed, and everything that is created has come into existence through him. And this is the very one, the one that with certainty, who himself will be coming in the clouds. So exactly who is this he that the text identifies as the one who is coming in the clouds? Well, he is Jesus. He is Jesus, and Jesus self-describes himself in this revelation as he who is, he who was, and he who is to come. Uh, He exists now, he always has existed, and he will come in the future. This is the one who is coming in the clouds. Jesus in this passage describes himself as a faithful witness, as the firstborn among the dead, as the king over all kings, as the eternal king, as the alpha and the omega. He says, I am, I am the great I am. I am the alpha and the omega, meaning I am the beginning and end of all reality. All reality has its Meaning it comes from me, it has its meaning in me, and it has its ultimate termination in me. I am the beginning and the end. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus Christ is this faithful witness telling us nothing but the truth. Now, I don't know how many of you remember from my generation the TV show Perry Mason. I swear to tell the truth and nothing but the truth. So help me God. Uh, the, the, the thing that uh, witnesses, um, uh, I think, probably still do, but used to always say before they gave up, gave testimony in court. Well, Jesus Christ is more than just a sworn-in witness. He is the faithful witness. He tells us the absolute truth, and he's telling us the truth about himself here. He is the one who John reveals here as the one returning in the clouds. Now, how much should we rely on this testimony of the true witness of Jesus Christ? Well, when a family, a friend, or an acquaintance tells you, I will be there for sure, I will come for sure, how certain are you that they will actually show up? Well, doesn't that have to do with how dependable they've been in the past? If somebody says to you, I am going to be there for sure, and they've always come when they said they're going to come, then you believe them that they'll be there when they do come. But if somebody tells you that, that sometimes shows up and sometimes doesn't show up, you won't be so confident that they'll arrive. Well, there is no one more reliable than Jesus Christ that says, I am coming again, and I'm coming in the clouds, and I'm going to fill the sky with such majestic glory that every eye will see me. Now, if we were sure, if we're absolutely sure of this fact that Jesus Christ is coming again in the clouds, that he is going to return and the whole earth will see him, if we wholeheartedly believe that, then that foundational truth should be a guiding point to all of our thoughts, our deeds, and our actions. If we really believe that's going to happen, if we really believe that that ultimate uh, first-time event that's going to change everything and going to 
reorganize all of creation and renew all that is, is broken is really going to occur, then it should be what should be on our mind every day in terms of how we order our lives. Now, think about these things. Uh, you know, thinking about the future often defines what it is that we will prepare for today. Like, let me give you some just simple pictures here. This is a picture, a funny picture of a job interview. Imagine it's a job interview. But I, I found this when I Googled job interview, and I thought, well, I'll, I'll have the penguin job interview. But um, think about this penguin job interview. Whenever you're preparing for a job interview, or whenever you're going to a job interview for a job you really want, you don't go unprepared. When you know that that day's coming and the interview's here and you really want the job, you prepare for the interview. Or what, uh, what if you're going on a first date with somebody that you really want to get to know? You don't go unprepared. You brush your teeth, you comb your hair, you take a shower, you know, you think of, uh, how you might engage them and in, in, uh, in being interested in what they're interested in, you go prepared because it's something that you want to, uh, you know, to have a favorable outcome on. Or what if you are living in the Gulf Coast and you get word that a hurricane is coming and it's targeting your town and you want to preserve what is yours? You take notice of that and you start to prepare. You board up your windows. You get ready for that event. Now, all future events that are meaningful to us, we get ready for. And no event will have more meaning or more impact on any single human being or humanity as a whole than the coming of Jesus Christ. It is the most important future event for all men to face when Christ returns in the clouds. And what will that day be like? What will it be like? We can hardly even imagine. Again, the theme this morning is, Behold, He is coming with the clouds. And point number one is, Every eye will see Him. And they'll see Him who loves us. They'll see the One who has shown His love to us. Every eye will see Him who has loved us. Um, let's take a look at verses 5-7 through seven again. <clears throat> And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom, priest to God and the Father and Father, uh, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Now, I want to focus in on this phrase, every eye will see him. Every living being will see him when he comes in the clouds. Now, how could that even possibly be? How can you even imagine that occurring? Look, think about it this way. At any given time on the face of the earth, the sun only is visible to half the earth. So how on a sphere like where we live will every eye be able to see him? You know, artists have tried to conceive of this event, you know, in various ways. Here's one picture of the idea of his coming with the clouds. Uh, 
you know, surrounded by legions of countless angelic beings. Or this is another one uh, from later in Revelation where he's storming in on a horse uh, with uh, his minions following him. Or here's a, another one where he's just filling the sky, uh, coming uh, alone there in the clouds. So there's various ways that artists have tried to capture this this scene where he'll be coming again in the clouds. Uh, but no one can really capture it because somehow, however it works, he'll be visible around the whole earth. He won't be in just one point, uh, you know, that's visible to the northern hemisphere or the southern hemisphere or one side of the earth or the other side of the earth. He'll be visible around the whole earth. Every eye will see him. Simultaneously, he will be visible. His glory will just be so radiant around the whole earth that uh, it's, a, it's a, an event that we can't really even quite understand because we can't really picture the magnitude of how that could possibly happen. However it works, no one will miss the reality of his eternal majesty. Everyone will see his almighty display of his glory. Now, the first time he came, his glory was covered. His majesty was much more subtle. I mean, we saw it in his miracles. We saw it in, in his teachings. We saw it in his resurrection. But, you know, if you just saw Jesus walking down the street of Nazareth, uh, you would not just be bowled over by the amazing glory of his radiant presence. In his first coming, he came kind of cloaked in the commonness of our humanity. It reminded me of, uh, this um, play that was written by Mark Twain, uh, The Pauper and the Prince. The Pauper and the Prince was a story about Prince Edwards who, uh, who encountered a pauper outside of the gates of his, his uh, palace. And uh, the guy, he invited him in. It was a pauper named Tom. And Tom looked a lot like Edward. In fact, looked identical to him. And they switched places for a time. And, and Edward was out on the streets in England, and, and no one uh, recognized him for who he was. And um, the drama would be, would he ever be able to uh, get back to his uh, original position, which he did after his father died, and, and uh, Tom acknowledged who he was, and, and he, was, he assumed the throne. But the first time when, when he went out, he went out incognito, and even though he was the prince who would be king, uh, people didn't really recognize him for that. The first coming of Christ uh, came in, in such a way that Christ was unassuming and he is very approachable. Uh, he could have easily been overlooked, but in his second coming, not so. When he comes with the clouds, every eye will see him and his glory will be in undeniable splendor and there would be no doubt every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and, and there'll just be a a self-evident truth of who Christ is, the one who is, the one who, who was, and the one who is to come, the Alpha and the Omega, the great majesty of Christ will be there undeniable. Uh, you know, all of the, those deniers of God will be silenced, and all of those who have uh, rejected Christ will have nothing to say. They will, will, will not be able to uh, want, address the presence of his majesty. It will just be so self-evident. 
Behold, he is coming in the, with the clouds is our theme, and every eye will see him who loves us is point number one. And point number two is great sorrow will fill the earth. Great sorrow will fill the earth. Let's take a look at verse seven again. Great sorrow will fill the earth. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Why will this great event cause a time of deep mourning? What is it about seeing Christ coming in the cloud? What, what is it about seeing him in all of his glory and majesty that will cause the people of the earth sorrow and to mourn his coming? Well, I think the key here is in what it is he, he has said about those he loves. Those he loves, those who have known him, those who have received his mercy here uh, will absolutely love his coming. They will not mourn his coming. We will not mourn his coming. And why won't we mourn his coming? Uh, to him who loved us and freed us from our sins by his blood and had made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory forever and ever. He has freed us from our sin by his blood. And from the beginning of time, men have been searching for ways. All men, every man, searches for a way, looks for a scapegoat. We among all creatures are the only ones that have a guilty conscience. We're the only ones that are weighed down by shame. You can't make any other creature ashamed of themselves because they don't have a moral conscience to, that tells them they have violated God's will and they violated other people and they violated themselves. That there is nothing that weighs on the conscience of any other being but human beings. And because of that, men have been searching throughout history for ways in which they could get rid of their guilt and their shame. And among all of God's creation, we alone are those who have this problem. And most of the time, we seek to uh, get rid of our guilt and our shame, looking for scapegoats that really don't ultimately work. Most of the time, we try to blame other people. From the very beginning in the garden, it was uh, a desire to shift the blame in order to escape our shame. Uh, our knowledge of our sin weighs on us, and throughout history, we've looked for ways of getting rid of that weight. And the most popular way of getting rid of that weight, as I mentioned, is um, to shift the blame onto somebody else. Another popular way of trying to get rid of that guilt is to view morality as a scale. If you were to ask anyone in the Islamic world, do you hope to be, why do you hope to go to heaven? They would say, because I have done more good things than bad things, that I hope God will judge my life and they'll see that I've done more good things than bad things. Well, does that work in a court of law? If you were to go before a judge and say, Your Honor, uh, I know that uh, I went in and robbed the bank. 
But I want to tell you of all the times I tithe to my church before you charge me with um, being guilty of robbing the bank. It isn't a way of getting rid of our moral guilt. Just because we've done good things doesn't mitigate the fact that we are guilty of other things. And this is really at the heart of, um, uh, you know, the Jewish notion, too, that uh, that we are uh, on a moral scale. And somehow, if we do more good things than bad things, our guilt will be exonerated. It's not going to work. Uh, guilt and shame does not uh, work that way. We can't get rid of it by shifting our blame onto others. You know, you're always hearing, but you, but this, but that. You know, I might be guilty, but you're more guilty, or you made me do it, or somehow. And the most popular scapegoat in the last 50 years has become various ways in which we uh, escape our guilt by putting ourselves in some sort of victim status. I do bad things because bad things were done to me. And that's why I did the bad things. It's really not my fault. I didn't really choose to do these bad things. I just was reacting to the evil that has happened to me. Or I'm a victim of my own uh, physical maladies or dysfunction. I have bad brain chemistry. I do bad things because my brain isn't working right. Or I do bad things because I have a genetic disposition towards some sort of ill behavior, uh, some sort of you know, addiction. I, I, it's not. I'm not really morally accountable because I have an illness. Is is the the way in which men have sought to uh, overcome their guilt and their shame um, a, a great deal in the last fifty years. But uh, ultimately, because we are human, because God made us in His image, because we have human dignity, He has given us moral volition. We have moral choice. We have the choice to choose. Uh, between what is right and wrong. And Jesus says, our problem is in our heart. Jesus says, the reason why we do bad things is because of what exists in our heart. In other words, we do bad things because we want to. Not because anyone actually made us do it. If you take man away from his moral volition and you, and you relieve him of his moral choices, you take away his humanity. What makes us, uh, in, at the height of God's humanity is this moral conscience that we have. Now, with all the uh, you know alternative scapegoats out there, it turns out there's only one effective scapegoat. And the only way to escape our guilt and our shame is to admit it to Christ through confession and not hide it, not try to shift it, not try to bend it, but to admit our guilt to Christ in confession and and when, when the Bible says when we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins based on his atoning sacrifice, based on his substitutionary sacrifice for our sins, based on what he's done for us. He is our scapegoat. He's made himself our scapegoat. He's taken on the role of the scapegoat. His blood was shed to transfer our sins onto himself and his righteousness onto us. His sacrifice is what places us in this state of freedom for those who love him. And boy, do I love him because, um, I, you know, I, I was one of those guys before I came to Christ where nothing I ever did was my fault. I always had some mitigating reason why it wasn't my fault. But it still ate at me. I never really could get rid of it. 
But when I was able to transfer my guilt and my shame, as I continue to transfer my guilt into my shame off Jesus onto Jesus Christ, I love him. I love him for what he has done for me. And I look forward to his coming because I know when he comes, uh, I will stand clean before him, not because I am meritorious, but because of his merits and because of what he's done for me. When Jesus returns to this world, I will be jumping for joy, but that won't be the general response. The general response will be one of grief and sorrow. And why? Why will people be so sorrowful at the sight of his coming? They will realize that they have been wrong for not trusting Christ. They will realize that it is grievous that they have rejected his love and pass by the one actual effective scapegoat for their sins. And the question is, will it be too late at that point when Christ comes in the clouds and the general and the whole population of the earth grieves at his sight? Uh, will it be too late? I don't really know the answer to that question. It, it's interesting in this text that it says, it, speaking of the Jews, that the Jews will look upon whom they've pierced. And for the Jewish community, I can say with confidence that it won't be too late. And I say that with confidence, not because of what I want to happen, but because of what Scripture says. In their own Scripture, in their own Scripture, in Zechariah chapter 12, it talks about this very scene when Jesus is going to be coming again in the clouds. And it talk, talks about it from a Jewish perspective. And what it says there in chapter 12 of Zacharias, it says these very same words that it says here in, in uh, Revelation. It says, they will look upon whom they have pierced, and they will mourn when they see him coming in the clouds. But it expands that uh, story there in Zechariah chapter 12, and it says that God is going to extend great mercy to the Jewish people. He's going to forgive them of their sins. He's going to cleanse them at that moment and restore them. So for the Jewish nation, I can say for confidence that it won't be too late when uh, Christ returns. For the rest of us, the Gentile world, I, I don't really know the answer to that. I hope that it won't be too late. I hope that people at that point in their grief and their sorrow will have time to repent and receive uh, the blood of Jesus Christ to wash their sins. But why not be happy at that moment? You know, why not live in expectation? of that moment. What would we do if we live in the expectation of his coming? We're going to confess our sins every day. And every time we acknowledge them, we're going to say, oh, Lord, I am so grateful. I, I see my selfishness. I see my weakness. And I, I see your spirit working in me to strengthen me and to keep me from walking in folly. But I, I know that I still stumble, Lord. And I thank you. And I confess this sin to you. And I confess that sin to you. And I thank you, Lord that I am cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Boy, what a, what a great joy it's going to be to look up and see him coming in the clouds and not have any guilt on our conscience whatsoever and not have any reason to grieve or to lament at, the, at his coming. Wow. Um, the theme this morning is this again. Uh, Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him who loves us. And 
Point number two is great sorrow will fill the earth. I'd like to conclude with uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. It says here, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What does that mean? That means Dalai Lama's knee is going to bow, and Dalai Lama is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That means that the Ayatollah Khomeini's knee is going to bow, and the Ayatollah Khomeini is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That means Donald Trump's knee is going to bow, and Donald Trump is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That means that Vladimir Putin's knee is going to bow, and Vladimir Putin will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That means that Katy Perry's knee is going to bow, and Katy Perry is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Even Suge Knight will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every knee will bow and confess. Our knees will bow, and we will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And let us bow ahead of time as we take communion. The high priest and and king forever, Jesus Christ, has given us his broken body and shed blood that we might be free from our sins and their consequences. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just come before you and we pray for this communion this morning, Lord, that as we receive it, Lord, we will be by faith receiving uh, the scapegoat, that we'll be receiving the cleansing of our sins, we'll be receiving the transference of our guilt and our shame, Lord. We'll be able to walk out of here um, knowing that we have been forgiven and knowing that we have in your spirit one who will restore us, Lord. Father, the truth is is that uh, it would have been hard for us to understand the meaning of the cross if you hadn't spent so much time with Israel showing them the meaning of an atonement through the sacrificial system. You showed them through their system how uh, through the sacrifice of the atoning lamb that their sins from the past years would be transferred by faith onto that innocent lamb who would die in the place of their guilt and their shame. And Lord, as you develop that whole picture, it enables us to see what you did with Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Lord, we would have never ourselves invented this idea of transferring our guilt onto your innocence, our guilt onto the very innocence of the Creator who created us. Our guilt was transferred onto the one who is, who was, and who is to come. You, the Infinite One, absorbed our guilt, and you have transferred onto us, transferred onto the one who